We'll be in Genesis 35. Uh, we looked at Genesis 35 last week. We're going to look at it again this morning. I'm actually going to read the whole chapter this week. We went through verses 1 through 15 last week to a degree, talking about um, corporate worship, our consecration to worship as a people. And this week, I want to get more specifically um, into the renewal of, of the covenant, that, that God's renewal of the covenant with Jacob. So let's look there. Genesis 35, starting in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebecca, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with them, and Jacob set up a pillar in there in the place where he had spoken with them, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel where they, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bila, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Billah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him, in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him for his help and understanding. Father, we do ask that your spirit would illumine our hearts and minds so that we properly understand and respond to your word. 
You are the, the God who is kind and compassionate and gracious, patient. The God who covenant with your people, who confirms those covenants and completes the work that you've given. We pray that as we approach your word this morning, that your spirit would help us to rejoice in the incredible grace that we see shown again and again to your people. Cause our hearts to be filled with gratitude for Christ, who is the new covenant. We know it was cut in him, in his blood, and that is our forgiveness of sins. He is our righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church in every age, church in every age has has wrestled with our doctrine and practices, um, and particularly with our doctrine and practices being bent toward some version of man-centeredness. It's, it's sort of the bent of the human heart to turn in on ourselves. We tend to hitch our wagon to whatever trend or practice we think will really improve the church. That's not just a modern problem. I will tell you, if you go through church history, that is a continual problem you see across the ages. The church um, during the Reformation and just after the Reformation, really within the, within the first hundred years after the Reformation and, and beyond, began to seem excessively staid to people. It, it began to seem almost dead to some. Um, particularly began to seem that way around the time of the Second Great Awakening. So the Second Great Awakening is the early to mid-1800s. In America, the church began to feel a bit um, too religious and not spiritual enough, if you will. Now, I dealt with that topic in some depth in last week's sermon with regard to worship, so you can go back and listen to that. But people thought it just feels rote and lacking in any real, true spirituality. So what they needed in their minds was new measures to effect a kind of revival. And in comes a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney is really the, one of the premier or best known, if you will, leaders of the Second Great Awakening. He actually did not believe in original sin. He didn't believe you were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He didn't believe in penal substitution, the idea that, that Christ bore the wrath of God for you on the cross. But he became quite popular in Christian circles. Um, he brought in a thing we call the, they called the anxious bench at that time. We've since renamed the anxious bench to the altar call. Started with him. He brought in the notion that with the right music, the right use of preaching, we can emotion, we can sort of stir up the emotions of people and drive them to a response. We can cause their hearts and their wills to be bent to a particular kind of response if we just lay the worship service out the right way. And that was true. He got a lot of response. A lot of response. That response didn't tend to last very long. So people responded with the altar call, they came forward, and before you knew it, their lives were in a complete and total mess again, and so then they rededicated themselves. They came forward again, and again, and again, until that area where it happened in upstate New York became called the burned over district. People just got burnt out on the constant chase after a new emotional experience in worship. And actually, if you know much about American history, especially the history of religion in America, most of our contemporary cults came out of the Burned Over District. Throughout this period and into today, we saw the rise of a number of movements that promised techniques that will deliver revival to the souls of men. 
and which will ensure that the church is finally like the primitive New Testament church. So we all want to be just like the primitive New Testament church. And I wonder when people pitch for that if they've bothered to read the letters to the New Testament church. Particularly Corinth. None of you want to attend the church at Corinth. It's a complete mess. Friends, this kind of jumping on the latest movement of the Spirit is pervasive. It's pervasive in the church growth movement in America. It's pervasive in the missions world. In recent years, we can think of the seeker-sensitive movement or the purpose-driven movement or whatever the latest thing is that will finally do what the church has failed to do. The house church movement, the emergent movement, even, frankly, the young restless reformed movement. But friends, the Holy Spirit blows when he wills and where he wills. We see the effects of his motions, but we have no program by which we can make him do what we want done. Yet we often think we do. So let me name two such notions that are nearly universal in evangelicalism to the point of being almost sacramental. One is the altar call or praying the prayer. You guys have heard of this. The altar call or praying the prayer. So the question becomes, well, when did you go forward or when did you pray the prayer? And, and I have a question about that. Where do I find the altar call or the prayer that I'm supposed to pray in the Bible? I don't know, but I sure have prayed it you know the prayer? I think I got saved eight to ten times at Hume Lake alone. <laughs> pretty, pretty much every winter and summer I was getting saved again. I was praying the prayer. And then all the time at night, I, I think I'm a mess. I should pray the prayer again. You guys understand. Or the second one being rededication. How many times have you rededicated your life to Christ? Here's how it goes. See, I trust in Jesus but I've made a mess of my life, so I need to rededicate my life to him, or I may lose my salvation if you're in certain denominations, or at least if I'm in other denominations, I will find out I was never saved at all. We create these sort of man-centered sacraments that replace the God-centered sacraments that are given in Scripture. The sign of your belonging in the covenant is not you walking down an aisle or praying a prayer, it's baptism. But be careful that you do not make your baptism into a man-centered sign. It is not a sign that you offer to God to assure him of your promise. It's a sign he gives to us to assure us of his promise. Rededication is like a a man-centered version of covenant renewal. I've sinned against the Lord and against this covenant. I'll make it right. I'll get back into God's good graces. Friends, you do not make it right to get back into God's good graces. Rather, it's God's good graces that make you right. Rededication is like a man-centered replacement for the Lord's Supper, isn't it? The Lord's Supper functions as a kind of covenant renewal. Whatever a covenant was made in the Bible, go look at them. Both the human covenants, just between man and man, and between God and man, whenever a covenant's made, they take, a, they take part in a covenant meal. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, a kind of covenant meal, it's functioning as a kind of covenant renewal. We come to the table again and again for the covenant meal, hearing once again the gracious promises of God in Christ being held before us. The Lord is offering himself to us as his people by faith once again. As those who have received him by faith, we partake in the covenant meal and are reminded that we're saved by the once for all work of Christ, not by anything we do. Christ is offered to us, if you will, again and again. You see, God gives the covenant. This is what I'm trying to get you to get a hold of. God gives the covenant and God renews the covenant. Even our repentance is granted by God. In other words, his spiritual spirit, sorry, his spirit graciously works and moves us to repentance. 
You do not merit his grace because you repent. Do you guys understand that? You do not merit his grace because you repent and confess and believe. Rather, you believe and repent and confess because of his grace freely given to you. We'll see that clearly in the life of Jacob. And if you have been with us through this section on Jacob, you've already seen that clearly in the life of Jacob. Jacob is a mess. God made a covenant with Jacob, and the passage we're looking at this morning, God's renewing that covenant. So I want to take that covenant in two parts. First, the confirmation of God's promises in verses 9 through 15. So though we looked at 9 through 15 last week, we're going to look at it a bit more in depth this week. Second, the completion of God's work in verses 16 through 29. By the way, I'll also pick up verse 8 in that question about the completion of God's work. So let's first look at the confirmation of God's promises. The confirmation of God's promises. Right after the sin of Jacob and his family, right after the sin of Jacob and his family, the Lord calls him to go up to Bethel. So I want to bring you back to verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So I want to give you the context once again. Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing of his brother, of his brother Esau by deceiving him. His mother, Rebekah, then said, Go to my family, to where I'm from, my country, and when you go there, take a wife from there. So Jacob heads out. He's also trying to avoid Esau murdering him. So he goes. On his way there, he stops at Bethel, and he has a vision, a dream, in which God covenants with him and makes promises to him. And then Jacob makes vows in response to that. And then Jacob heads on, and he goes to the land where his mother Rebekah is from, and he takes a wife. In fact, he takes four of them. You can go back to that sermon. We'll deal with that there. And he has no, multiple children. And then he starts to head home after a whole exchange with his father-in-law Laban. And Laban's trying to deceive him, etc. He heads for home. On the way home, he stops. And when he stops, he, has an ex- he first runs into Esau. And they get reconciled. He wrestles with God and... He's renamed. All of these things are happening. And then his sons come to a place, he and his sons come to a place where his daughter Dinah is raped and captured by the people, the Hivites. And then two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, deceive the Hivites into being circumcised and then slaughter them, take their women, take their children. It's a horrific scene. Jacob keeps his peace. He's silent in the face of his daughter's rape. And the only thing he has to say about his son's murderous rampage is, you've hurt my reputation in the land. It's at the end of that that God says to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, that place where we met before. Go there and dwell there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And the Lord protects him as he goes. Look at verse 3. Then let us arise. This is Jacob. He tells his family, we've got to consecrate ourselves for worship. Then he says, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. See, in spite of even Jacob's sin, the Lord has been with him wherever he's gone. The Lord has protected him. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So the Lord is with him. The Lord protects him. And now the Lord is calling him back to renew the covenant with Jacob in Abrahamic terms. So look at verse 9. Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. Now, this language reminds us Of the garden, doesn't it? What's the first thing that happens to Adam and Eve when God says, let us make man in our image? Male and female, he created them, right? He made them in an image, male and female, he created them. And then it says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now look, and God, so God blessed him and God said to him, 
your name is Jacob, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now what's fascinating about that is that's clearly a covenant renewal. When Jacob wrestled with God, God already changed his name to Israel. And so now the Lord is coming to him and renewing the covenant. In fact, God told him that he was named Israel in Genesis 32, 28. This isn't the first time he's heard it. This isn't where the covenant's being made for the first time. This is covenant renewal. The name Israel means the Lord will fight for you. And Jacob has seen the Lord fight for him. And now the Lord is re-engaging him covenantally. He's re-engaging him covenantally after a lot of sin. Do we all understand that? After a lot of unfaithfulness. That's similar to when Jesus comes to Peter after his denial. I don't know how much time you spent in the, in the Gospel of John. But if we remember the denial of Peter, Peter denies Jesus three times. He was fearful and cowardly and denied the Christ, his Lord and Savior, at his most difficult moment in life, at the cross, at his trials. I mean, Peter's so cowardly that even when a little girl says, aren't you with the Messiah? He's like, no, I don't know him at all. And what was behind that for Peter is a lack of love for his Savior. That's what drove his his fears and his cowardice. Now I want you to think of that scene in the context of the Gospel of John. When John first, uh, sorry, when Peter first meets Jesus, Jesus meets him and addresses him as Simon, son of John. And then he says, you're Simon, son of John. No longer will you be Simon, son of John. I will now call you Peter. And he does not use the name Simon, son of John for the rest of the Gospel of John. He only calls him Peter until the very end of the Gospel. Upon his resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter, who had denied him. And Jesus addresses him again as Simon, son of John. It's like they're going back to the first moment. Jacob, you'll be called Israel. Sin, 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 sin. You're not Jacob. You'll be called Israel. Simon, son of John, you'll be Peter. Denial, denial, denial. Simon, son of John, let me address you again. He's enacting a kind of covenant renewal. And what does he ask Peter three times? Not, why are you a coward? How come he didn't steal your spine? Why weren't you more manly? Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He does not ask him, are you courageously dedicated to being an apostle? He renews the covenant with Peter and says, do you love me? To which Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus replies, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Do you hear what the chief shepherd is doing? He's not standing off in the distance waiting for Peter to rededicate his life. Peter isn't even looking to rededicate his life. Peter's fishing. He came to Peter, and he renewed the apostolic call with Peter. He graciously calls Peter to shepherd his sheep, and this stokes increased love for the Savior in the heart of Peter. Friends, it is love for the Savior and thus for his people that drives the true under-shepherd. This is precisely because it's the chief shepherd's love for us that was the cause of him giving himself for us. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. It is when the love of God for me in Christ is shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. That's when that happens, when I come to know by the work of the Spirit God's love for me in Christ, then my love for the Savior is increased. Well, here in Genesis, the Lord is renewing the covenant with Jacob. This is a loving and gracious motion of the Lord toward a man who sinned greatly. The Lord comes to him and calls him up to Bethel, to God's house. 
and watches over him and renews the covenant with him. That's a, this is a parallel to Genesis 22 when Abraham goes up to Mount Moriah, which Mount Moriah, if you don't know, is in Jerusalem. In fact, Mount Moriah, we're told later in Chronicles, is where the temple was built in Jerusalem. And there God provides a sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac upon that mountain, and there God renews the covenant promise with Abraham. Well, Jacob went up to the house of the Lord, as did Abraham. Both, both went to hear God's promise or God's covenant renewal. So look at Genesis 35 and verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. This, this is an important title. We'll get to it in a minute. Be fruitful and multiply. Do you remember that right there in Genesis 1? This whole covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is about reversing, renewing, restoring, redeeming what fell in the garden with Adam and Eve. They were called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God and they fell into sin. And now our lives bear a lie about God. And God covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to bring about redemption so that we are then renewed in true righteousness and holiness in Christ, so that we bear his image rightly. These are the covenant terms, so look, go on. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. By the way, this language is a congregation of nations, an assembly, like, in other words, a church of peoples, tribes and tongues and languages shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. In fact, the king. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now go over to Genesis 17. Go over to Genesis 17. And I just want you to hear that this language is the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, the promise is made in Genesis 12. The ratification of the covenant and its cutting is in Genesis 15. And the sign of the covenant is given in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 17, we get more details. Each time we actually get more details of the covenant God made with Abraham, both in the initial promise of it, in the ratification of it, and now in the giving of the sign. But look at this, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations or peoples. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. You guys hear all the language? And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then he gives them the covenant sign. Jacob understands what the Lord is doing here in Genesis 35. He knows that the Lord is renewing the covenant with him. He trusts that the Lord is confirming his own promises. When God renews the covenant, he confirms his own prior promises. He knows that. He knows it's parallel to what God did with Abraham. God made promises to him in Genesis 12, ratified them in Genesis 15, gave him a covenant sign in Genesis 17, and then took him to Mount Moriah and renewed the covenant with him, adding an oath and vow together, if you will, in Genesis 22. And now Jacob understands, God appeared to me and made a covenant with me, the same one he made with my father. And God is appearing to me again and renewing that covenant with me. 
How do I know that Jacob knows that? Keep your hand at Genesis 35 and go to Genesis 48. Genesis 48. So you know I'm just not making stuff up. Genesis 48. And look at verse 3. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz, that's Bethel, in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So he's incorporating them into the 12 tribes who are a part of this promise God has made. And Jacob understands that. Saints, listen, if you're Christ's through faith, then he, if you're Christ's through faith, then he, he will keep all his good promises to you. He will. You do not finish the, the race of the Christian life by your own efforts. You don't start it You don't participate in it midway, and you don't complete it by your own efforts. Even when Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and admonishing everyone, Colossians 1.28, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. He says, we do this, we work hard at this, we struggle at this with all his energy. He's the one who confirms his promises. Yahweh saves He doesn't start your saving. He saves you from beginning to end. Yes, you work and strive, but what? It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Your most sincere confession and repentance is not a product. Please hear this. Your most sincere confession and repentance is not a product of you rededicating your life to Jesus. It's a result of the Lord graciously renewing the covenant with you. His spirit convicts you. His spirit reveals to you the glory and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and his spirit strengthens your faith and leads you to repentance. We never confirm God's promises. He's always the one who confirms his promises. Look with me at Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, just so you see the Well, I think the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. There's some debate over that. I think the other people are wrong. That's how arguments work, right? (laughs) Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater, Hebrews 6, 13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. See, he made a covenant with Abraham, he made these covenant vows to Abraham, and then... So that Abraham knew that he wasn't the one keeping it, that God was, God then added an oath to it. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. In other words, you can dwell in the Holy of Holies where God is. Why? Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus is the answer, ultimately, to the promise to Abraham. But where's your confidence, friends? Where's your confidence, It's in the God who makes and confirms his own covenant. This is given to encourage the Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians who in this very passage up at the top frame, the first four verses, have watched their friends fall away from the faith. 
And Paul exhorts the church to keep trusting in the Lord. He then encourages them with the word of God's confirming grace. God saves you. God confirms his promises to you. Abraham didn't hold on to the end. God held on to Abraham to the end. He most clearly confirmed his covenant promise to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. To be God to you and for you to be his people through the gift of Jesus Christ to ratify that covenant with his own blood on the cross. So the question is, do you know him? Do you trust in Jesus? The only way to be in covenant with God such that you're saved is to trust in Jesus Christ, is to look to him. He is the new covenant. He is the fulfillment of the covenants to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or the covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the covenant given to Israel through Moses, the covenant made with David. Jesus fulfills them all. He's the only way to be saved. Otherwise, you're still an Adam. You're still at that place where you're fallen in your sin, subject to death and eternal separation from God. Unless you look to Christ, the one whom God has sent to save you. If you've turned to him in faith and been saved, then you need to understand, saints, I please hear this. This is the reason why we do this whole, um, we're going to profess the forgiveness of sins, like announce the forgiveness of sins to you, if you trust in Christ. The reason we do that, Luther, actually, if you don't know this, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said that you need to not only announce to the saints the forgiveness of sins um, regularly in corporate worship, you need to do it in their homes, particularly those who are really harassed by serious guilt and shame. You need to remind them, Christ has forgiven you your sins. If you know that, saints, you understand the Savior loves you and gave himself for you. And that engenders in us love for him. When we, exceed, when we see his exceedingly relentless kindness to us, then we begin to return that love, if you will. That then gives you, when you see that, that then gives you the courage to repent and to confess your sins to bring them into the light, to cast yourself upon the relentless grace of God. Listen to how Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, the same light that causes the heart absent of grace to cower in darkness is the light that cleanses the man who has seen Christ as his Savior. And it empowers us to confess our sin. Now, I don't mean immodestly. I, I, I hope we get over this kind of cultural authenticity, we call it, where everybody's just blurting out all their junk all over the world. That's not, what, that, that's not a biblical kind of approach to life. There is a thing called modesty. You, you confess your sins to people whom you know have a kind of trust and confidentiality that you can trust in. Um, you don't go out blurting it everywhere as if your sin is your identity. That's not who you are. That's what you did. That's what God saved you from. And that leads to our second point, the completion of God's work. The completion of God's work. Look with me at Genesis 35.8. Genesis 35.8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. It's an interesting phrase. Just in the middle of here, all of a sudden, you just find out that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. This is the first time she's mentioned. But Rebecca, Jacob's mother, has already died. And Deborah, his nurse, 
is the one whom she sent to care for him and the family. And now she's died. And so he names this place Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. It's, it's this place where he's weeping. It's, it's a sense of like my mom has died and now the nurse that she gave to care for us has died. In other words, things are starting to wrap up in Jacob's life in a way that those of us um, moving to or already in the golden years understand. We call them the golden years. They're terrible. Like everybody you love dies. There's nothing golden about it. They call it the graveyard years or something. So, but <laughs> maybe it's because you have more money. I don't know what it is, but when you start watching everybody die, that's what's happening in Jacob's life. Look at what happens. Um, go down to verse 16. Go down to verse 16. They then journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor. Remember, she had said that she's going to Joseph is named in such a way that she's going to have another son. And so now, here he comes. Went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which is um, son of sorrow, or son of my strength. Either he zapped all her strength, or she sorrowed over him. Scholars argue about the, the translation, but the point is, she's pointing to the fact that it's in his life that she's dying. But his father called him Benjamin. Benjamin means like father of the right hand. Father of the favored one. So, by the way, the favored one is not Benjamin, though Jacob does favor him. Father of the, uh, you know, the son, sorry, son of the favored one is a reference to Rachel. He favors Rachel. And Benjamin is the son of the woman he favors. Your, Jason, I guess your son's named Benjamin, so... So Kristen's the favored one. Jason only has one wife, though, so we'll just be really clear about that. He found the favored one and just didn't keep going. All right. So he goes on. Look what happens. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. See, do you see what's happening? Jacob's mom has died. Jacob's nurse who cared for him has died. Jacob's wife has died. It's going to keep going. It's going to keep going. To complement to matters further, not only are all the women in his life whom he loves dead, but now his oldest son is going to committed a, a, a serious offense against the family. So look at verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now, so you understand. My wife, my parents, the people I love are all dying. My children are grown up and making a wreck of their lives. This is a difficult time in life. Reuben's wreck is really particular he slept with his stepmom. That's gross on a number of levels. But it's also the case that he's likely, what he's likely doing, scholars say, is, is ensuring either that Billah cannot replace Rachel as the favored because he's, he's the son of Leah, so that Billah cannot replace Rachel as the favored wife, or he's trying to take the reins of the family from his father. However we account for Reuben's sin, it's awful. Look at Genesis 35, 22. Genesis 35, 22. The last part after Israel heard of it. Now the sons of, sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, and Levi. At this point, by the way, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have all made a wreck of themselves with their sin. Judah's going to come next, just so you know. Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Billah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Now this is, 
a list of, if you will, Jacob's sons being pointed to the 12 tribes. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But let's end with the death of Isaac, his father. Look at verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is nearly a repeat of what we hear about Abraham's death. Abraham dies of old age, received by his people. You know, he's lived a goodly number of years, if you will. He's buried by both of his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And now we see a kind of repeat. And then the thing that comes right after the death of Abraham, by, or, by the way, is, is these are the generations of Ishmael. And now what comes after the death of Isaac is these are the generations of Esau in Genesis 36.1. So they're being paralleled in their lives and their deaths. But what Moses is doing here is he's wrapping up the story of Isaac as told through Jacob and Esau. Think about that. Isaac's story is told through his sons, particularly the story of Jacob. You will then turn in chapter 37, that's where we'll come in chapter 37, to the life of Jacob, or the story of Jacob, as told through his sons, particularly Joseph. That's why Esau's genealogy comes next, just as Ishmael's did. And that's why in Genesis 37, we read, here's the genealogy or the story of Jacob. And then it goes on to say, Joseph was... There's one major lesson I want you to learn as we come to the end of Isaac's story as told through Jacob. Sin and death, sin and death in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not stopping God's work among them. That's why I pointed out, let's come back to the 12 tribes in just a moment. God's promise is, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will carry forward the seed of the woman through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through your offspring. I will bring forth a company of nations. I will bring kings from you. I will bring you into the land. All of that is being fulfilled in the face of sin and death. God's promises for his people are not deterred even by the vilest acts of Jacob and his sons. And God's promises for his people do not relent even in the face of death of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebekah and Rebekah's nurse Deborah and Rachel. The Lord is our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. That's true for God's people in every age. Listen to how Paul speaks to the church at Philippi. And I am sure of this. I'm sure of this. I'm confident about this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Lord will complete his covenant work. His holy will and purpose cannot be thwarted. Sin in the camp of God's people and death in the camp of God's people are certainly incongruous with God's holy presence there. That's true. But neither sin nor death in the camp of God's people will stop the work of Christ by his spirit. He will complete the work he has begun. He will build his church. He will gather his sheep, and he will bring the sheep all the way home. I wonder if we believe that. Do we believe that? That God began this work, and God will complete it. It doesn't hinge on us. It doesn't hinge on us. We are the grateful recipients of it. We rejoice in thanksgiving, trusting the Lord, knowing his love for us. See, he knows his sheep. He set his electing love on them. He gathers them. He keeps them. And no one will snatch them out of his hands. No one. That's why we can all sing Psalm 23, isn't it? 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a place for me in the, before, excuse me, before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the God who saved us and who will bring us all the way home. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your kindness to be known by us, that your spirit would cause our hearts to be filled with faith and gratitude and joy that you are our shepherd. That you have saved us. That you will keep us in your hand. Bring us all the way home. We know that we are a people who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. May we trust that. May we know that truth ever more dearly. May we see it with great clarity by the working of your spirit in our hearts and minds so that we rejoice in Jesus forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.